The call to worship this morning is found in Psalms 85, verses 9 through 11. And if you're following along in your pew Bibles, it's on page 547. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. Our first New Testament reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 13, page 1068 in your pew Bible. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Reading from Philippians 3, chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew, of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Good to see you here. So many of you are back from vacations, exciting places. Wow. Uh, I guess I can't say anything. I had a sabbatical this year. Would like to say I'm jealous, but I guess I can't even say that, although it's true. Wonderful to have you back. It's a summer uh, day again, so um, the back of the ship is full. The front is, is uh, high in the water here. We have very few people to anchor it. I'm doing my part um, from, the, from the bow here, but uh, good to have you here. And it's good to remember why we're here in terms of the message and what things are all about. We've been talking about a big word. I love this word. I want you to say it with me. Ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the study of church. It's the doctrine of church. It's a big word. It comes from the word ecclesia, 
in the Greek, which means gathering. And for those of you who speak Spanish, how do you say church? Iglesia, right? Which is ecclesia. It's the Spanish version of that Greek word, ecclesia. So Iglesia Adventista del Septimo Dia is the Seventh-day Adventist church in Spanish. That's how we say that, okay? So this word really talks to us about what does it mean to be the body of Christ. Because for those of you who haven't been with us week to week or you've been here for some sermons but not others, since I got back from my sabbatical, May 1, we've been looking at three questions in one form or another. And if you're tired of hearing them, good. Uh, I hope you get so sick of them you can repeat them in your sleep. That's what I'm looking for. The first question is, is the story of Jesus, as we understand it, embedded in the story of God and humanity, is the story of Jesus still a meaningful story? And I think most of you want to say yes. And then I've said after that, okay, if it's a meaningful story, is the story of Jesus still a relevant story? Our Bible is 2,000 years old minimum. We're talking about other cultures and ancient times and places. We have different values in our culture now than we had 30 years ago or 50 years ago or certainly 200 years ago. Is this still a relevant story? And again, I think most of you want to say yes. You're here, aren't you? So I'm going I'm to take that as an affirmative for most of you anyway. And, and I'm going to assume, it's a dangerous thing to do, but I'm going to assume that for most of you this is still a relevant story. And what we've got to work on collectively is how we can understand it in even more relevant terms. How can we make it even more powerful, real, and meaningful for our own lives day to day? Which brings me to the third question, which is, is this story, which we say is meaningful and which we claim is relevant, worth organizing our lives around? Now, that is where the rubber meets the road. That is a very difficult sort of piece to grapple with. Because what does it look like to say the story of self-sacrificing love is the way I want to organize my life? How do we parse that out in terms of all of the different roles that we play in our, in our daily lives, all of the different duties and tasks that we accomplish? How is it that we live out self-sacrificing love in our daily life, in our Christian walk? And so we've been talking about reflecting the person of Christ collectively a bit in what it means to be a church. And this is why I asked you earlier to read my letter. I probably don't praise you enough. I should do that more. I am just so humbled and touched at the generosity this church has shown this summer in the various causes that we have talked about. You supported Islamic ministry. You have supported people in prison who've done things that you don't like and agree with and I don't either, getting Bibles for free. Because you believe that if they can read that story, if they can get a hold of that somehow, it could change their lives. That they might be able to reorganize their lives around the story. 
So my sermon title today is, You Are the Story. When Christ has imaged himself in the church, the body, and when you are the body and you act like the body, you are the story. You become the gospel. By your generosity, and there are many other ways to be generous in your time, in your volunteering, in your support of one another here, we've talked about some of those pieces before, but when you take on the body of Christ and take that seriously and act like the body of Christ, you become the story of Jesus to the world. I don't know how to put it more succinctly. And so what a pleasure this morning to gather in worship. What a delight to know that so many of you have been willing to support this body in one way or another. We're not connected to the Woodkey family directly, but Christy Guy is working there. Diane Whitley worked there last summer, part of our connection. Brennan has transferred his membership to Walla Walla, not because he doesn't want to be a part of you, but because he wanted to be more involved as a student up there, and he's going as a student missionary, and you've expressed support. I just mentioned the prisoners. I've mentioned the Farsi ministry. I've mentioned these things. The body of Christ. You know how when we gather at communion time and I, we break the bread, the body of Christ broken for you? That's communion that speaks of community, that pulls us to something meaningful and deep, something that we have actually funded, not just with money, but with our time and our lives and our energies. So thank you for being the story and being the body of Christ. It's so exciting. And if we can build on what we're doing and build... God will do amazing things way beyond what we've ever envisioned. Faithfulness yields that. It's unbelievable what can happen. You know, as long as it's just Paul working on the roofing project and a couple of other people, it's going to be years before we recover from this. But if everybody said, oh, I can help, we'll be done with this project, no time. No time. few checks written, few volunteer hours put in, Prayer said, work done, done. The body of Christ. The body of Christ. That's telling the story. Now, there are several ways in which the story gets told to in Scripture because our witness isn't just corporate and it isn't just internal. Our witness is to the world. Last week, I made a startling revelation because it's a difficult one for me. I said that I believed that witness actually had to involve word. Oh, boy. In other words, I have been tempted, as many of you believe or have believed, I have been tempted to believe that somehow if I was ethical, kind to others, displayed... um, a judicial manner and carried myself with Christian deportment, that if I was honest in my dealings, that if I spoke well of others, that if I was a person of good character, that if I volunteered in the community, that somehow Jesus would be lifted up in that. And I'm, I'm here to tell you Jesus is not dishonored in that. That's the good news. 
But very, 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 very few people will say, hey, what's with that guy? What they're going to say is, isn't he a nice guy? And Greg Honus being a nice guy is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can put your name into that sentence, and you being a nice person is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's better than you being a nasty person. It's better than you being dishonest. It's better than you taking advantage of people and them knowing that you're a Christian. It's better than any of those things, but it is not the gospel. So I have a couple of ideas that I want to share with you over the next couple weeks. They're brief, they're succinct, but they're pretty clear. They come to us from the ancient art of rhetoric. Now, there's a word we don't even know anymore. When we think of rhetoric, we think of maybe political argument. But in ancient times, as those of you studying classical education or involved in classical education know, in ancient times, rhetoric was a study, a very important study on form of argument. And there were really three classifications to the form of argument, three proofs, if you will, in classical times when it came to the art of rhetoric. And these proofs are employed in Scripture over and over and over again. And if you don't know what they are, you'll miss it. You'll miss what's going on in Scripture. So I'm going to use each of these proofs to talk to you over the next few weeks a little bit about what it means to witness with word. The first one is ethos. The second one is pathos. And the third one is logos. Now, some of you pronounce that like logos, pathos, ethos. That's okay. Uh, I'm kind of giving it the Koine Greek uh, uh, pronunciation there. But those three words are the form of rhetoric. Now I can see some of you falling asleep already. (sighs) Greek, ethos, but who cares, right? Okay, so let me move on past that little uh, snooze moment there and, and get you back on board. Why are these words important? Because we have corresponding words today, right? The most familiar one to us is logos or logos, right? We, at least as Christians, we've heard that word, Logos Bookstore. Any of you seen a Logos Bookstore or something like that? You've seen it out there, and what Logos means is word. So we're going to talk a lot more about that later. Basically, that's the one rhetorical device we use most. Then the one before that, pathos, is how we might appeal to other or to emotion. What, is, what word do we use commonly that in, incorporates pathos? Empathy. Thank you, Lee. Empathy is the word. Have you ever been empathetic with somebody? You're sharing their feelings, their emotions. You're entering into their reality with them and sitting with them in that for a minute. That's part of an argument in ancient Greek rhetoric times. The first one, though, is ethos, and I want to spend a minute here because ethos has to do with the argument of character. Let's go back to my children's story. Argument from character is designed to bolster support for what is said. Now, we've lost this in this culture. We've lost it. There was a time when being mayor meant that if you said something, being mayor added to the credibility of what you said. 
Nowadays, it diminishes the credibility of what you said. Oh, he's just a politician, we say, which means that he's a liar and a cheat automatically. Okay. Pastors, same thing, used to be able to say, this is what the Lord says, and now people go, oh, really? Oh, really? Too many scandals, right? Too many scandals. Money stolen, lifestyles lived that are outrageous, prostitutes solicited, affairs had, homosexual engagements made. The ministry has taken a hit in the last 50 years, especially the last 20, 25 So when a pastor speaks anymore, especially in the public sphere, it's no longer assumed that he or she has integrity, no longer assumed that positionally the fact that they've risen to that role in the body of Christ and in the community means that they have any credibility. It's no longer assumed. Those would have been in past times arguments from ethos, character the way in which character becomes an argument that supplements word. Jesus used this. Let's just review a quick few times. At his baptism, for example, when Jesus is baptized, a voice comes from heaven that speaks, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. There are those who hear this voice. So God the Father becomes a witness, a testimony to the person of Jesus and who He is. And the Spirit appears in the form of the dove, Scripture says. And Jesus, though sinless, is baptized by John. And I've discussed this with you before. I believe He needed to be baptized by John, not because He was sinful and not because He needed cleansing, but because John was the greatest prophet of His day. And John becomes one of the witnesses that gives Jesus authority and proof. John is a character witness for Jesus. Here comes one who, though younger than I am, is greater than I am. That doesn't mean much in our culture, but if you come from a culture, say, in China or Korea, you understand what that means. An older brother is an older brother even if he was only born two minutes before you. You have a different word for older brother than you have for younger brother. Entirely different category. Elders are respected in traditional cultures because those who come before are more important than those who come after. That's just the way the structure of the whole society is built. We're a youth culture. We discard the old and we embrace youth and pursue it with everything we've got. Hey, I'm ready to have my teeth whitened and my bottle diminished and I'd like to look 30 again. Anybody with me there? Or am I just vain all by myself? You better raise your hands or this... Oh, shoo. Okay, good. So it's not just me. Uh, This is part of our culture, see? But in a traditional culture, the one who comes before is superior. And Jesus, John should have been the superior. He was the prophet. He was the cousin born before Jesus. He should have been Jesus' superior. And what does he say? I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal of the one who's coming. I'm not even worthy to be a servant to him. And John the Baptist has to actually 
humbled himself to be the baptizer. And Jesus is blessed in this moment from the above and from John the Baptist. This becomes part of the credibility of Jesus' argument. This becomes part of his credit card, if you will, his credential as he goes forward in ministry. When we get to John chapter 7, about 8, actually last part of 8, um, the first part is that story of the woman caught in adultery, uh, which is not in the earliest of manuscripts, but the latter part deals with the authority of Jesus and the way that's being questioned. And there's a whole argument about Abraham. We are Abraham's children, the Jews say. And Jesus says, yes, if you were Abraham's children, you would know me and you would love me. If you were sent to the Father, you would know me and love me because I'm sent to the Father. Character arguments, ethos. But Paul does these probably the most blatantly and the most succinctly and the most frequently and perhaps even the most effectively. I shared two of them with you in the texts that were read today, but let's go back to those because so often in the early moments of, of, of our worship, we're distracted. We're settling our kids in. We're fidgeting with the hymnal. We're trying to let go of the fight we had on the way to church in the car. Oh, and if your family is like mine, that does happen from time to time. We're trying to uh, recover from the week. We're trying to wake up. We're trying to do all these things. And so we miss sometimes the words of Scripture as they come to us. And worse, when we read these Scriptures, many of us judge Paul harshly. I don't relate to this guy. Why does he say all this stuff? Why does he always talk about himself? Why does he build himself up? It's a good question in today's culture. Shouldn't he be more humble in his approach? But now, if you understand ancient times and you know the importance of rhetoric and how rhetoric was studied, it was one of the chief subjects of study in ancient times, you would know that Paul is effectively using a proof of argument that will only make his case stronger for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about him in the end. Let's take a look at these passages. The first one is Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6. I'm going to start in verse 3. This is Pew Bible, page 1068, for those of you who are using a Pew Bible this morning. 1068. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 3. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Now, normally we want to be commended by others, right? I'm going to pause there for a second. We want to be commended by others. It's sort of bad form, if you will, in polite culture today to commend yourself. But listen to how Paul wants to do this. It's an argument from character. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. First of all, in great endurance. We have put up with everything. 
in troubles, hardships, and distresses. Ever experience troubles, hardships, distresses? Had to endure through those? That's a commendation of character. In beatings, imprisonment, and I might say false imprisonment, by the way, imprisonment and riots. In hard work, sleepless nights, in hunger. In purity, that's an interesting commendation, isn't it? In purity, in understanding, patience and kindness. And don't we read that as part of the fruits of the Spirit that are spoken of in Galatians 5? In the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. In truthful speech and in the power of God. With weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6. The right hand and in the left through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful and always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, Having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Could you hear that passage differently than you've heard it before as I read it just now? No? Hopefully you could hear it differently. Hopefully you don't hear a braggart talking about himself. Hopefully you don't hear a man putting out his credit card and saying, deal with that. It's platinum black. Hopefully what you see is a person who has adopted a motif, or a, 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 not a motif, adopted a character, a way of being in the world that lends credibility to word and is itself word. See, in all of his sufferings, in all of his denials, in all of the things he's given up, he counts it but loss for the glory that is in Christ Jesus. For Paul, the question of, is this a meaningful story, has long been answered. For Paul, the question, is this a relevant story, doesn't even enter into his mind. And for Paul, the question of, how do I organize my life around the self-sacrificing love of Jesus, means that he will be Jesus' follower in suffering and in death, and in everything between. He will organize his life in a way that is structured in self-sacrificing love as he gives himself to the establishment of the church of God in Asia Minor. Body, life, ecclesia, 
will be important for Paul. His letters, his words, his ministries will focus on that. He will build up the body of Christ like no one before him. Jesus Christ came to reform Judaism. Peter and Paul built a church. And what a wonder. With a billion and a half people who are Christians today, what a legacy from someone who decided to organize his life around the self-sacrificing love of Jesus Christ. What would happen if 250 people in Santa Clarita organized their lives around the story of the self-sacrificing love of Jesus Christ? What kind of world would this quickly become? One more. And it's just a few pages over, and it was also read this morning, but I want you to find Philippians 3. And in your bulletin, it says 4B. What that means is the last part of the passage. Philippians 3, verse 4B. So I'm not including the first part in what I'm reading. I'm beginning with the if in the new paragraph. Page 1086 in your pew Bible. If others think they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh... I have more. That's pretty uh, strong, isn't it? That's pretty confident. If anybody has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, we either put our confidence in flesh or spirit. And the dichotomy that's spoken of is one we don't relate to very well because we're not the people of covenant, but it's circumcision versus not. Is this this whole idea of are we going to be a people dedicated to God or aren't we? It all comes back to how we build our lives and organize ourselves around the story. Can you see that? So here in 3, 4a, if others think they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, booyah, a Hebrew of Hebrews, In regard to the law of Pharisee, you will find no one more careful than I, he says. No one more zealous for the jot and the tittle. No one more careful than me. As for zeal, persecuting the church, putting people to death, that's a lot of zeal. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Wow. Wow. That's a lot to say. That seems like a pretty big brag to me. But let's read on. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. You see what Paul is talking about? Paul so effectively uses argument from character. He's lived this life of integrity from a certain point of view. But in light of the gospel, he's humble enough, realistic enough, gracious enough, clear enough to know that all of that is meaningless. His righteousness is truly as filthy rags. And he considers it all loss for the gain that comes in Christ Jesus because he's ordered his life around that story. What is your argument from character? How does your ethos add to your word, your logos? How does your ethos, what you've endured, what you've given up, what you've encountered, what you've put forth, how does that reflect the priority of organizing your life around the story of Jesus? Only you can walk that walk. And only the rest of us can share and support you in that. And I want to be part of that. And I thank you for engaging this text and this journey with me. Because I can think of nothing more important for us to engage at this point in history. The world needs people who don't say they're Christians, but who say they're Christians and live like they're Christians, who have the character of Christ and are willing to engage the suffering of Christ. This is where we're headed. This is the world we're being engaged in and the world will be increasingly part of and called to. And so I would bless you as you think about this, as you pray about this, as you process this, as you let God's Spirit move, teach, instruct, guide, as you help us come to some kind of understanding corporately of what we can do, of what it looks like to be this body of Christ, not just in word or deed, but in every way imaginable. Let your character be the ethos, the argument that persuades somebody that the story you tell is worth organizing their lives around. And at this time, I would like our deacons to please step forward. There are many giving targets. Your offering envelope explains a number of those. And I would be delighted if you would uh, respond to the call of God again today and support your church. Thank you. And so, Lord Jesus, may we proclaim your saving grace. Yes, in word. 
and with conviction and emotion, but also through all that we endure, what we give up because it's nothing compared to the glory and majesty and wonder and grace of you. Amen.